We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining me for this episode is Sam Walker. Sam is the author of the unbelievable book, Captain's Class, A New Theory of Leadership, where he looks at 17 of the most dominant sports teams in history, and then specifically into what separates them. Named one of the best books in 2017. It's a must read for all coaches. So. Sam is also a Wall Street Journal deputy editor for Enterprise, and he founded the journal's prize-winning daily sports coverage in 2009. So an unbelievable writer. Um, this interview will hopefully do what the book does to you, and that's challenge your assumptions on choosing captains and how we look at captains, question your belief on how we look at leadership in general, and then give you some practical ideas on how you can implement these into your team as well. So I really enjoyed this. As you can tell in the interview, he challenges me also on a few areas that I had questions about on leadership. It's a question I get from a lot of coaches is how to choose captains, how do you do this? There's so many different ways. Some people do it voting, some people do it with the best player, some people do it with the player that they feel is an example, best communicator, all that good stuff. But I think Sam's ideas and, and his thoughts will really really help so i hope you enjoy this really really excited to hear what you think let me know on twitter at gary kernin instagram at gary kernin facebook coach kernin i always appreciate coaches reaching out and and giving their feedback and what they think and and all that good stuff so again i ask you every week <laughs> give it a little like on the on the itunes ratings as please spread the word always appreciate the support here, Sam, and enjoy. Sam, thanks so much for joining me this morning on the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Thanks, Gary. It's great to be here. Um, your book was the captain's class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams, has been so well received and very much needed in the soccer coaching community. Uh, well, can you tell you. us what was the inspiration behind the book? You know, there were. it was really a question. You know, I've actually had to think about this because... It really started with the 2004 Boston Red Sox, and that was a team that I had spent a lot of time with over that season, and I just didn't see greatness in them at all at the beginning of the season. They just seemed kind of undisciplined and loose and funny, but not serious or really a championship-caliber team. And I watched them over the course of that season turn into exactly that, you know, and turn into a great team. And I started getting really curious about the process. You know, what is it? What is that thing that allows a team to overcome all the inertia and and become great. And, you know, the question for me, it was, it really came down to something that I noticed that was really strange, which is that as a sports writer, I spent time with some of the great teams in, of the, of the era. I mean, the, the Barcelona and, and uh, uh, the Yankees of the nineties and the New England Patriots and Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls. And, you know, I, I'd always ask athletes on those teams and I'd say you know why why is this team so great what is it that makes it so much better than every other team and I was always stunned because they just kind of shrugged I mean they would give me some 
sort of cliched answers, but it just didn't seem like something they'd given a lot of thought to. I mean, being on this, these great teams seemed very natural to them. It just seemed like everything was working properly. And Tom Brady, you know, his famous quote about this is he says, you just do your job so everyone else can do their job. It's really not that (laughs) complicated, you know, and I just thought that was an oversimplification. But what I noticed was that I'd ask the same question to athletes on teams that were lousy. I mean, teams that had a lot of talent or high expectations, but couldn't put it all together. And that response was totally different. I mean, it's like pull up a chair, you know, like you have half an hour and they would go on and on about all the reasons the team was, was not performing and all the things they had tried to do to fix it and failed at. And, and it just struck me that, you know, look, great, great outstanding teams are so rare, but when you're in one, it just feels like everything is working normally naturally and then when bad teams are a dime a dozen but they it's hard work i mean it's hard it's difficult being bad you know it's really not easy it doesn't feel natural so i sort of think maybe there is something maybe there is some quality inside a team that allows it to achieve greatness but also to sustain it and maybe it's not quite as difficult as we thought so that's really what set me off on this crazy research project yeah, on that subject, the research then, because it was, was it something 15 years or something? 11 that, years. 11 years yeah, went into totally. it. So what, what was that? Was that individual interviews? Is that watching games, DVDs? Well, some of it is, you know, I had a job, so you know, <laughs> I, had, I, didn't, I couldn't devote, you know, every waking hour to mm-hmm. it. But no, really, I mean, it was so complicated because the first thing I had to do was put together a list of the greatest teams, right? I needed a sample to study and... You know, I, I was shocked when I looked around. It just, no one had ever really done that in a systematic way. I mean, they'd always used some, you know, one statistic, which was kind of flawed in some way, or else it was very parochial. I mean, it, someone in, in, the, in Europe, would, would, it would all be, you know, soccer and rugby. And, you know, I, I wanted to do the whole world. I really wanted to be comprehensive. So, you know, I realized I had to look at every single team in the history of sports, in a major sport. And, you know, I, I looked at all of them starting in the 1880s and going, you know, all the way through and men's sports, women's sports, anything that was really, you know, a major uh, world sport. And, you know, there were 25,000 of them, you know, when I started and, or more, I don't even know. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't even keep them all in one spreadsheet, but they, you know, I started to figure out how to narrow it down. And that was, that was a ton of work. I mean, just coming up with the criteria for what constitutes a team in the first place, you know, and, and what, how having to define a team. And then, having to figure out what greatness really is. And I mean, there were a few basic filters, really. I mean, the filters were, I wanted to study sustained dominance. So I, I only looked at teams that had been great for at least four years. And, uh, and then I looked at, you know, teams had to be at the top of their game. They had to be you know playing the best competition in the world at the highest level of their sport. So that seemed pretty basic. And then the last one was just, they had to have done something unique. I mean, they had to have won more championships or games than any other team in their sport. And, uh, those, that was it. And those four filters when applied to all those teams left me with just 17, Mm. uh, 17 teams that got over the, all of those bars. And I was stunned at the, how low that number was, but you know, I had my sample and and look, there's many great teams that, that also have these characteristics that, you know, I could have looked at, but I really felt, felt like that was a group that there were just no question marks whatsoever about any of those teams. And that they were kind of, freakishly great 
So that was a huge part of it. And then it was just diving in to see what they had in common. And that was, God, I mean, so many teams I analyzed that didn't make it in the book, you know, and, and it was just years of, of devoting, you know, a month or so to every single team that was anywhere near that, that bar. Yeah, I posted on my Instagram this morning that there was I was looking forward to to challenging you on one of these. <laughs> sure. My, my hero of all time, Sam Michael Jordan. Who, yeah. And and when I think of cultures and I think of the greatest teams like that that Bulls team kind of the, both of those goes around. Like I had when I was 14, 15, I bought those videos, those season reviews. Yeah. And I I could memorize them off by heart. Such a So when I was like you know your work came out. I thought, well, Jordan's and he's not in there. So no. how did, how and why <laughs> does he not make your list? Well, all right. So the Bulls are one of those tough teams because obviously they're an elite, an incredible team, um, and they were in the second tier. I had about 120 second tier teams, but you know when you look at their record, it was that uniqueness. I mean they they won six titles in eight years. That was not as great. It's the Celtics of the fifties and sixties who won 11 and 13. And, you know, over time they just, they didn't have the longevity that the Spurs had. I mean, San Antonio Spurs, you know, recently, I mean, 19 straight years in the playoffs, five titles, the highest long-term winning percentage in the history of the NBA. And, and so, you know, they didn't, they didn't do anything unique. Right. So that was, that was why they weren't included. But, you know, I did a whole chapter on Jordan for exactly that reason, because I think everyone looks to him and thinks that he's the model for a great team leader. But it is just unbelievable. I didn't know any of this, but when I started looking into it, I really traced it back to the moment where the Bulls made that turn. Because, you know, for six years, Jordan's first six seasons, I mean, they didn't win. And the knock on him was that he's going to be the greatest NBA player who never won a title. And Phil Jackson was, wasn't Phil Jackson. He was a second-year coach. And they came out in 1990, and they had a really rough start, and they weren't playing well. And Jackson did something that no one noticed, which is he made Bill Cartwright the co-captain of the team with Jordan. And, you know, this was bizarre because Jordan hated Cartwright. You know, Jordan really didn't like him and because they had traded Charles Oakley, his good friend, for Cartwright and had really been publicly demeaning of him and, and giving him a hard time. And... People were really surprised by that move, you know, but they didn't, it didn't really register. But if you look at that moment, I mean, I, I forget the exact date. It was early in the season, in the fall of, uh, uh, during that season. And they, that's when they clicked. I mean, from that point on, they went on to win, you know, something like almost 70 games that season and they won their first title and they won three more. And, you know, it was Bill Cartwright who was not, he's never the person you would think of as the leader of that team, but. He fit my profile perfectly, perfectly. I mean, he was the guy who convinced all the other players to buy into their roles. I mean, the, the other players on the Bulls just really resented playing what they called Michael Ball. You know, it was everything revolved around him, and it was very hard for them to to accept their roles on that team. And Cartwright was the person who kind of made that happen and mentored and coached and was very selfless and only thought of the team. And you know, so it really was like Michael and then the, the rest of the team. And that was the formula, you know, during all their championship years. And it's just kind of overlooked that, you know, he was not a great leader. In fact, he was he had a, many of the great qualities that a great leader needs, but he was also very hard on people. I mean, he, he was he would lash out at people to personal attacks and 
you know, very damaging things that are usually toxic inside a team environment. So, you know, we hold him up as an icon of leadership, which kind of does leadership a disservice because it's not glamorous. It's not the superstar. It's the person behind the scenes doing the, the thankless work that, that really propels a team forward. Yeah, the one that did make the team, or did make your list, was the 99ers, the women's national team, yep. um, which, of course, changed the game in terms of women's soccer, I think, around the world, never mind the U.S. But you've, again, we think of that team, I think of Mia Hamm, Michelle Akers, Julie Foudy, you've highlighted Carla Overbeck's contribution, similarly along those lines, someone that works in yeah. the shadows. Um, yeah, and, and no one knows who she is. Mm. You know, she's like... And the thing is, she didn't care. She didn't want anyone to know. I mean, she's such a great example of what I call the water carrier, which is the usual role of these captains. I mean, some of the, you can be a star and be a great leader. It's just rare. I mean, most of them are, are people who really play in, in soccer. It's usually a central defense you know, or, or defensive midfield. I mean, it's someone who you know, works behind the scenes and kind of leads from the back and, and is incredibly selfless. And you know, Overbeck's a great example because she – just had no interest in attention and or personal acclaim. In fact, when the team, you know, after they won the World Cup, they they flew to New York for a huge rally in Midtown Manhattan. They went on David Letterman, and you know, and she didn't go. She was just like, "You guys, I really have fun. I'm going to go home." And I asked her what she did that day, and she said she did three loads of laundry. You know, she didn't care. She uh-huh. job done for her. She just cared about the collective result and not anything about the individual attention or acclaim. And you know, she did all kinds of selfless things. She trained and practiced harder than anyone. She carried the team's luggage, you know, off the bus. I mean, she would do anything to help the team. But on the field, she was incredibly vocal. And she, you know, but her teammates understood that, that when she criticized them or tried to motivate them, she was coming from a very genuine place. And, you know, all the players will tell you that she was the engine. She was the, the thing that made that team, gave it its grit and gave it its um, its ferocity and and you know, was also someone who really, you know, by distributing the ball and never trying to score or do anything flashy herself, she was able to kind of control the tempo of the game and, and distribute the ball to her teammates in ways that made the team better. And she's, it's a counterintuitive kind of leadership. You know, we don't think of it. We always think that the leader should be on the highlight reel doing impressive things, but really everything she did, all the small acts of service on behalf of that team are what really powered it and made it so great for four or five years just unbeatable almost yeah just that carrying the luggage so i would say that in my experience in today's i hate saying the word today's generation but in today's game there's always the areas of conflict in teams where it was 20 years ago areas of conflict were uh, events in a game you didn't mark someone in a corner or we got lost and it was your fault but now these areas of conflicts have almost been replaced by small things that are you know those carrying luggage or who's got the balls or who's washed the pennies or bibs so I think a lot of soccer coaches have that now in their teams where it's difficult the kind of the resistance of culture is these arguments or this uh, underlying uh, tension in between teams do you think that the way of kind of getting through that or overcoming that would be more rules? Is it recruiting character? Is it recognition programs? How would you solve that? Well, I think the main thing is that, especially in soccer, I see this time and again. And and I think the most important thing to remember is that the economics of the sport, especially now, um, 
in the high levels, but this is true of, of junior teams and youth coaches too. It's, there's this, there's this tendency to think that the person who makes the biggest contribution on the field um, is the leader by really just because they, they're the person whose, whose words and thoughts and feelings are going to carry the most weight. And that's wrong. I mean, I think especially in soccer, you see this time and again, whether it's Barcelona and, you know, Carlos Puyol, you know, he may have been the worst athlete on that team, you know, but he was the guy who held it together. And Brazil is such a great example, you know, because everyone thinks of Pelé and Pelé was, you know, the greatest player we've ever seen, but you know, he was never the captain, nor did he want to be because the captaincy was seen as the job of someone who, who was going to devote all of their time to whatever needed to be done inside the team. So it was Hilderado Bellini, you know, in that great run. And then Moro and Carlos Alberto were the captains and Pelé never captained that team. And I think one of the things that's really important to remember is that when you put that burden of leadership on your star, uh, you know, you're creating a level of pressure that's really hard for anyone to sustain. I, I've seen very few people who can do both. It's just being a leader is really about constantly scanning the field for everything that needs attention, that needs to be addressed, and, and constantly being ready to sacrifice your own goals or your own play in order to, um, you know, to, to fix something. And, and that's something that a star can't do. It's very hard to score goals. It's very hard to be dynamic. It's very hard to get yourself in the right mindset to play at that level of brilliance. And I think Brazil, you know, and, and all these other teams understood that that's not compatible with leadership. So a lot of the tensions I think that, that crop up inside teams have to do with the fact that people expect the star to be the leader of the players and expect the coach to be, to have outsized power. And, you know, economics play a role in this now, but you kind of get this weird thing where, you know, there's, there are two power centers inside most teams. There's the star and there's the coach and manager. And, you know, that, that's a bad situation because you really need an intermediary between them and, and the intermediary should be the captain and the captain shouldn't be either of those things, but should be someone who can, you know, kind of bridge that gap and, and have some independence and some autonomy, uh, on the field to make, um, decisions and to to lead in tactical ways and that's why I look at Didier Deschamps you know from the great French World Cup teams and the way that he served the team and and you know never tried to do anything individually but was always distributing the ball and and trying to kind of control the team from the back to lead from the back and um, I think when you have a figure like that inside your team who is selfless and who is really committed to team goals, everything else just kind of falls in line, you know, and your superstars who feel this burden to lead are relieved of it. And that's a huge thing for them to be relieved of, of having to feel responsible for leadership. And I think you'll see immediate results. If you, if you place your captaincy and you show that you, that's what you value and you show that you value those characteristics, I think you'll see immediate improvement in all, all those con, all that conflict, all those, tensions that crop up inside teams will start to, to fade. Yeah, your, your book definitely challenges conventional thinking, um, as we are expected all the time, still do it myself, expect the star to be the captain. Uh, but how do we get through as coaches, how do we get through the minefield of, it's bias, right? It's, it's bias to think that a top player has that character. We overlook, we talk to the top players more, we give them more attention. Whereas the players, the Carla Overbecks of the team, we maybe don't know them on a personal level, 
So how do we as coaches, is it a role of an assistant coach? Is it just increasing self-awareness? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's two things for coaches to remember. And the first is that you just have to start thinking about leadership differently and thinking about leaders differently. And, you know, I, I say this kind of in jest, but it's kind of true. I, I, I think that the best thing you can do is to walk inside your dressing room or anytime when your team is practicing or, or kind of congregating and just pretend that you just landed from a spaceship and you've never seen these people before and ask yourself, who's the least likely person on this team to be the leader? Like who's the last person you would ever think was the leader of the team? And it's probably not that person, but you're a lot closer probably to the right answer than you are if you, if you look for the qualities that we usually think leaders have, because, you know, it's just really about watching what, how they, what they do. It's about finding that person who is genuinely committed to the collective outcome and not their own. So it's people who make sacrifices for the team, but it's also a style of communication. I mean, great leaders that I've found don't give speeches. They're not the loudest voice in the room. They're people who kind of work the perimeter of the, of the team. I mean, you'll see that they're comfortable approaching everyone and that they will deal one-on-one -on -one with people very intensely, you know, often in the moment when something needs their attention and they listen as much as they talk and they talk with great, um, uh, energy to, to everyone. And, you know, they, they don't stand on a soapbox and, and give grand pronouncements. They, they kind of work quietly and, and you'll see, you know, also that's why I feel like your, your captain usually comes from a, a rearward position because, it's someone who is, is thinking about getting rid of the ball the minute they get it. It's someone who is, um, you know, trying to, uh, to think about the team's goals and also someone who's not afraid of conflict. And this is the second point that I think coaches really need to understand. And most don't is that, you know, your authority, I think coaches and managers get very hung up on their authority and on seeing their vision and their, um, their, their ideas about how the team should perform and play carried out. And what I found on all the elite teams and not just in, in soccer, but throughout sports is that the great coaches always had a leader like this on the team, but it wasn't a boss employee kind of relationship. It was very much a partnership. And that person usually had very good tactical instincts and the coaches were able to step back sometimes and give them autonomy and let them be right. Let them make uh, changes to the plan and let them improvise and give them some independence. And when they do that and they have someone on the field who is, um, you know, a second manager in some ways, that, that's the combination that really works. So you kind of have to be willing to step back and, and form a partnership with your player leader and let that person be right sometimes. And, and you got to accept being wrong sometimes. So those are the two things I think most managers don't do when they're um, inside the context of a team. Yeah, which is which is relationships, right? In any relationship, right. it's about give and take. And then, as coaches, are we uh, are we unwilling, or are we too? I suppose the the power of habit is: are we too ingrained in controlling everything, or trying to control as much of sport as we can? When really, the the players, if we want players to embrace, it has to be driven by them. Yeah, I I think that that's all exactly right. I mean, the the thing that I've noticed that I've seen in not just in sports, but in all the academic research on high performing teams is that 
it's really counterintuitive. It's hard to get into your head, but Alex Ferguson really put this perfectly, and, and he's a great example of this. He said, my job is to take care of absolutely everything, everything, every minute detail, everything that happens inside the team leading up to kickoff. You know, and that at that point, I turn it over to the captain. And if you remember Ferguson on the sidelines, I mean, he would he would sit there in the dugout with his arms folded. You know, he wasn't jumping up and down and yelling like Guardiola does or any of these other coaches. I mean, they he he and he he laughed about it. He said, "What are they doing?" I mean, you know, the players can't hear you, and if they can, you're just distracting them. You know, he really did hand over the keys once the, the match started to his captain and. That's not saying that coaches aren't important. It's saying that your job is about preparation. And that's what the academic studies say. They say that real team leadership and guidance, 90% of it happens before your, the performance. It's all in the preparation. It's all in the architecture of the team and how, how it trains, how it practices, what its rituals are, everything that you can control. That's, that's 90% of the battle. And you know what you do inside the performance is not nearly as important so again that's that's tough because you know i think managers now especially the ones in professional soccer who get paid so much i mean they feel like they need to earn their salaries by running around and gesticulating and and getting a lot of camera time during the match but you know i don't think that's the right way to go i think you know that's when you you have to build your structure and then you have to trust it and you have to trust the player who you've designated as your field leader to to carry it out and you know I, I think it's it's something that's tough for a lot of coaches to um to, to have the restraint to do that but it's it's really crucial if you want to sustain excellence over a long time yeah do you think we're misinterpreting you know as much as what people like Guardiola and Klopp have brought to the game in terms of the tactical level and, and just the ability in general of teams to perform are we misinterpreting their their you know, the psych-social aspect of that, their ability to communicate, the ability to bring teams together that we don't see um, on a Saturday, but we, you know, they, they're working on throughout that there. Is that another trait of those teams? No, look, I, I, I want to be very clear about this. Like, those are great coaches. And, I mean, a great coach is important. And here's the thing. Like, you can be great. Like, any team can win. You know, you don't need this model. You know, what I'm really talking about here is – how do you sustain that excellence? Because you know, once a team has shown that it can win, it has championship caliber talent, then the whole game is different. The game is how do you keep it going? And that's really where you need this kind of leadership inside the team. And so I'm not I'm not knocking any of these guys. I mean, they, you know, winning, you know, a Champions League or, or even Premier League is huge. And, and and that's an incredible goal. It's a worthy goal. What I'm talking about is trying to be great, trying to be great for a long time, trying to keep it going. And, you know, in order to do that, you have to have a different structure. I mean, it can't all be on the, on the manager's shoulders. And, you know, that's, that's where the difference is. And, I, I, you know, Guardiola is, is fascinating because he was a brand-new coach. I mean, he had one year with the B team in Barcelona when they went on that crazy run. And, you know, he did a lot of things well, but he was very hands-off in some ways with that team. And... You know, Bayern was a kind of a slightly different story. And now I think it's City. I mean, you know, he's got Vincent Company, who's just a terrific leader and, you know, the best captain in, in the Premier League, I think, by far. And, you know, I think he 
I think he understands that being a captain himself when he was a player. I think he understands. I think he's found the right balance with, at City. So, you know, there, there are many ways to go. And really what I'm talking about uh, is sustained excellence, building a dynasty. I mean, that's that's where this stuff really becomes important. Another area that I question for you, Europe, you know, you highlighted the, the Hungary team of the 50s, the early 50s, right. and the role of Puskas in that leadership role. And again, my thinking of a captain is someone who take or a leader is someone who ticks all the boxes. And one of the biggest boxes, that fitness level. Yeah. Puff, Puff, he was the furthest thing away from that. Oh, day. my God. He was like 40 pounds overweight uh, at one point. Yeah. It was crazy. So, so that's... He's, 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 he's a, really an outlier in so many ways. Mm, yeah, that's, that's the thing. So... Uh, you know, could that still could that still exist in today's world of ultra fitness? <laughs> could could that person still be a top captain today? Well, see, this is what I think is interesting about the research that I did because I was surprised at how many of the, those seventeen teams came from really unlikely places like Hungary or Cuba, you know, or, or New Zealand is is another example. I mean, these are small places like, and and Cuba and Hungary were poor and repressed, and these were not places where you would expect greatness to come from. Um, but what I realized after talking to a lot of people in those countries and around those programs was that they just didn't have the depth of players. So, you know, someone like Pushkas, who you're right, he never, he wouldn't make it now. People would take one look at the guy and they'd think, no way. <laughs> right. But in Hungary, like they didn't have that many options. And so he was able to play a lot. And, you know, I don't think most most places would have made him a captain either, um, because he was, you know, again he was he really pushed back. I mean, he was very in, you know independent and very um, difficult to manage. And you know, all those things I think now would 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 ruled him out as a as a captain. Um, but you know, because he came from that weird place, I think he got the opportunity to lead that he mightn't have been given in a place where where you're you're looking at Adonis's at every position. I think he he wouldn't have been chosen as the leader. And I think that tells you something. You know, sometimes it's the unlikely teams that, that have to make do with players like Pushkis, you know, who look funny. I mean, th- those are the places that sometimes hit on this formula accidentally almost. And you can see it's clearly accidental. I mean, Hungary has never been – I mean, they've been okay in the past before that, but they've never been any good since. So, you know, it's not something about being Hungarian or, or, or about the soccer culture in that country. It was – yeah, it was one of these freak occurrences, and I think it all had a lot to do with his with his style of leadership. Yeah, just going back there, they're saying there about small places, Cuba, Hungary. Then you mentioned the role in Brazil of that great seventies team with Pele, Carlos Alberto. Also, then you know, I, without even thinking at the time, that that team of the ninety four team of Romario and Bebeto had Dunga in there. Do cultures perceive? leadership differently is that does that play a big role that is such a great question and i you know one of the best interviews i had i went to rio and i and i met with carlos alberto shortly before he passed away which is just really sad uh great shape but he um he was fascinating about this topic because he and, and think about brazil i mean is there a more diverse country in the world no i mean it's not just diversity in terms of people's, you know, racial, ethnic backgrounds or country of origin. 
there's incredible poverty and incredible wealth. And, you know, that team draws from all strata of society. And you're dealing with people who, you know, come from very affluent and educated backgrounds and people who come from just shoeless poverty in the jungle. You know what I mean? And trying to um, unify a Brazilian team is incredibly difficult. And what Brazil hit on, you know, it's funny because you go down there and you think, this is a place that produces incredible soccer talents, like impresarios, like Pelé, Neymar, you know, you name it. And that's what they're known for. But what they hit on was because the pressure on Pelé, as he said, was so intense and being a superstar in Brazil and being really a global icon is a full-time job. This is if you want to play at that level. And everyone just inherently understood down there that that person could not possibly be the leader because Leading a Brazilian team was so challenging. It took such an incredible ability to relate to different kinds of people and to deal with constant controversy and uproar and you know all the press and all the attention that team receives. That was a full-time job in itself. And they absolutely intuitively understood that, everyone. And that was the seed of their greatness to me. I, you know, they, they, they happened into this perfect system of checks and balances where the, where the superstar was never pressured to lead. And, you know, they got away from that. I mean, they, they made Neymar the captain, remember? And it was just amazing. And I remember Carlos Alberto was just saying, I don't know why they're doing this. I mean, maybe someday he could be captain, but not now. And I mean, they just kind of turned on all of their traditions and the results were pretty disastrous. And I think now they're kind of getting back to that model. But, um, but I think it says something, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, a lot of these countries and a lot of these teams, um, because of the circumstances around them, figured this out, you know, and figured out the right model and backed into it, really. Whereas I think teams that overthink it um, tend to make the wrong decisions and the wrong, come up with the wrong structures. Yeah, I, I think, and also, you know, challenging conventional thinking, we, we can put too much players, we can put too much pressure on players, can't we? Absolutely. And that's, see, that's the first thing that I think any coach, any manager should think about is I'm telling you, I've seen this happen, you know, now, I mean, I've studied so many teams and I can tell you that the minute that someone comes along who is clearly committed to the collective goals and is going to run into that burning building when no one else will, is going to do that thankless job that someone has to do. You know, there are just certain leadership functions inside a team, and they just need to get done. And that's it. You know, it doesn't matter if the captain does them or someone else does them, but they need to get done. And the fact that there's someone on that team who is in a position of authority, who everyone knows is going to be that person, the effect is incredible. I mean, it's immediate because everyone, especially the stars, just feel this relief that they don't have to feel guilty that they're not contributing enough to leadership or that seeing things that they know need their attention, but they just don't deal with them. So what it does is it frees up everyone to focus on the leadership jobs that they're good at. You know, maybe, maybe you're a veteran and you're really good at giving people perspective. Maybe you're someone who really is kind of, you know, the, the den mother, someone who kind of worries over people and wants to make sure everything's okay. Maybe you're the spark plug, the fire plug, the person who, you know, uses emotion in crucial moments to drive the team forward. You're free to do that, you know, when you can and to contribute your leadership ability to the team, but you're not on the hook for the really 
difficult things because you know that you have someone in the room who's going to do it. And the effect is immediate. I'm telling you, everyone just – that's what Tom Brady was saying when he's saying you do your job so that everyone does can do their job. That's, that's what he was – that's what he meant. You know, someone does that captain job, which is a hard job and a thankless job. Everyone is free to do their job. And that's when it becomes simple. That's when it just feels like everything's functioning well. And, you know, that's, that's why those teams seem natural to us. All right, last couple of questions for you. Always interested in, in sports uh, across the board. Who's developing things that we can learn from, especially in the soccer coaching community? Uh, in your opinion, which sport is developing leadership quicker than others? That's a great question. Um, I don't see a lot of good things happening in soccer right now in terms of leadership. I mean, I think um, I don't. I think the economics are so difficult right now, and and the um, the pressure to retain stars and to uh, and to sign well-known coaches, uh, you know, to to make a great TV product. I think on that level, it's really hurting people. I think I've mentioned Vincent company. I, I love watching him. I think he's a terrific leader and I think he um, is a great example, but you know, I think probably the teams that I feel the best about um, I've been watching the NBA a lot and you know, the golden state warriors I've, I've spent time with and, and written a lot about them and they have a, a, an amazing leadership structure with Andre Iguodala and they completely understand how that works and why that works. And uh, he's not the star of that team, obviously, but he is um, that glue guy who keeps it all together. And he has a good compliment uh, in, in Curry and Draymond Green who do other leadership functions. So they're great. And the Boston Celtics this year are just a terrific study of this. I mean, they have, they don't have a captain and this is something that Stevens has talked a lot about, but they have Al Horford who, who really plays that kind of central role. But, you know, they have done so much work in looking for players who um, you know, can feel that responsibility to the group and will take on leadership functions. And watching them, they have no business you know, getting anywhere near the NBA Finals after losing their two best players. But you know, they're doing it with a bunch of kids, and it's, it's really, I think, a testament to the power of teamwork. So I think because the NBA is small, because there are only five players on the court at a time, I think these dynamics are becoming more evident to them. And I think, uh, I think they may be a little bit ahead of other teams, but you know, I'm seeing pockets of it in baseball and, and the NFL. I've seen uh, teams that are really starting to think seriously about this teams that are drafting a lot of captains and leaders, um, people with leadership abilities. So I think it's happening slowly everywhere. I still think it's just this great untapped advantage. And, you know, I think, uh, that anyone who is looking for that 2%, that 3% edge that can, uh, carry them on and, and help them continue to win over a long period will, should really start thinking about this, these intangible questions because there's no data, you know, there's no, you can't quantify it, but it's real. Yeah. The, now that recruitment piece is is fascinating to me. We had a college coach on here, Nate Lee, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about you know what you can what you can read from kids in the process of bringing them into your programs. Do you see any value in the NFL? I take it still do the for every player they're drafting, they do this real detailed meeting with them. Right. Is there value in the leadership component of that, or is that just basically looking for personality traits? Yeah, no, I've, I, the NFL is very interesting to me. I've talked to some NFL teams very intensely about this exact subject. And 
they do get more time and they get to give psychological tests and personality tests and they have time to, um, to speak with them. But for the most part, they're, you know, they, they, ha they grade them in terms of character, but um, it's not something they're, they're really systematic about. And they don't, you know, they really go a lot on recommendations and they don't do a lot of things in these interviews um, or ask a lot of questions that will necessarily yield valuable answers about, about how they might be in a leadership context. And, you know, a lot of times when they have the staff psychologists like meet with these players, uh, they're really just looking for red flags. I mean, they're really just trying to make sure they're not maniacs. Um, and that's, that's a lost opportunity. So yeah, they're, they're, they have a, an opportunity. There's also an incredible wealth of, of previous interviews and things they can go back and they can find these people who have emerged as great leaders and go back and look at how they answered questions and what they said. So I think the NFL has a great opportunity to, um, to start figuring out how to identify these people and, you know, that is the, that's the, that's the holy grail because most teams don't get a lot of time with these people and they don't, they're not able to, to really interview free agents. They get very limited time. They're not allowed to speak with them and they have to go on what other people say. So I think these, how we evaluate and the questions we ask when we do get access to, to these athletes and even the questions we ask people who know them, um, you know, I think the more systematic and sophisticated those questions are, the better results you're going to get, but you're right. I mean, it's tough, especially in college. I mean, we're talking about kids, you know, and yeah. you just never, you never know. Yeah. Where perspectives change so much at that age group, right? Their, their yep. lives are changing. Yeah. It's difficult. It's difficult. Okay. Um, one that I know uh, so many coaches will be listening to this. So you've got to ask him, you've got to ask him a uh, high school club choosing captain. I mean, what's your what's your little piece of advice for them? You know, not to say you should do or you shouldn't do, but is there a definitely don't or definitely do? I I preface this question and I get it asked a lot, and I preface it by saying, youth coaches have the toughest jobs and but the most important jobs. I mean, because everyone, most of us, learn about teams and teamwork from sports, and you know, you're not you may have a professional caliber player come through once in a while but what you're doing is you're doing a public service to the world because you're teaching people about leadership and that's where we learn it and so it's a huge job and it's so difficult it's also these are kids and it's really tough so you know this is my advice which is i think there's so the captaincy can be so difficult because so many kids you know egos can be you know broken by not getting it you also have a tendency to, to turn these kids into monsters by giving them the captaincy if they don't know what they're doing or how to respond. I mean, they really become toxic almost in the, in, inside the team because they just start ordering people around. So my advice is to you really have to look closely at that team and you have to look hard for that one person who has that collective mindset. And, you know, <clears throat> I think there's a, there's a great tendency, there's a great – uh, lure to have the teams elect a captain and that's just the wrong move because I think that's the most important thing you do as a coach is to say here's what I value and here's the leadership qualities that I value and I think you need to be unafraid to pick someone who's unlikely and you know it needs to be the right person someone who's going to be able to diffuse the bruised egos who's going to be able to show their commitment to the team and win everyone's trust but one thing that I think is important is don't be afraid to pick an underclassman, you know, because I think 
everyone thinks it needs to be a senior. It needs to be someone who's, you know, been there for a while. But I think I would say at some point, if you think you have one of these people and they're young, then you need to just give them the responsibility. There may be some bumpy road at the beginning, but I think what you want to do is create that culture. And I think once you've created that culture, then it will sustain itself because the next person you know, will will be easier. And the next person after that will be easier. And it will just start to become something that the players understand because they've grown up in, inside that kind of system. So, you know, don't, don't be afraid of youth. You know, if you think you have someone like this, that is a rare gem and you need to, um, you need to, to show the team that that's what you value, even if there's controversy. Last one for you. Uh, a Champions League team gives you a blank check and tells you to come in and organize their leadership, their culture. Uh, what do you spend the first two, three weeks doing? What I have seen time and time again is that the crux of, of a great team. Um, look, I'm not an expert in strategy, football strategy. I mean, trying to, you know, you need a lot of things to be great. A great team needs many things. You need talent, you need tactics, you need coaching, you need luck, you need you know, a lot of things to break your way. But I, the place that I would start and where I tell every team to start is you need a strong partnership between a manager and your team leader. And the best possible situation is that these people come in together relatively inexperienced. Maybe that person has been at the team for a year or two, has some leadership qualities, and that manager is new. And that relationship, it's like the Brady and Belichick thing. It's Popovich and Duncan. You know, it's, it's, it's those two people come into the team and they, uh, they build it together. And that is the first relationship and the most important one. And then that's really where I'd start. I mean, I think you got to think about that combination. You've got to be willing. You've got to have a younger coach, someone who's not looking for the next, you know, uh, stamp on their suitcase. You know, the, the person who's who's going to be there for a while. You want to kind of lay the groundwork and have those people work together. And, and then you start adding pieces. And when you're adding pieces, you obviously need talent. You, you need to look for superstars that are team-oriented, obviously. But, you know, you need to start thinking about the things that the captain can't really do. And you need to look for players who can fulfill some of those functions too as you're building the team. And I think if you start with that base... Um, that's the best way to go because, you know, if you want to, and I'm talking about sustaining it, I'm not talking about winning a title. I'm talking about putting together one year phenomenal team that can hold it together to win a championship. I'm talking about, you know, building a culture that will be self-sustaining. And I think that, you know, that's a goal that's hard for anyone who's building a team to imagine because they're on a short clock and they know that if you don't start winning, they're probably going to be gone. But, um, you know, if you have the courage to do that, I think you start there. Uh, you know, you have a position, you're in a position to do something really amazing and to, to kind of achieve a level of immortality that you won't if you take a short-term view. So start there. That's the key relationship and everything should grow out of that. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Sam, thank you so much for your time and insight. This, is, uh, this has been phenomenal. It's just been Thanks, a, Gary. Uh, for myself personally. Um, you won the MJ argument uh, as, <laughs> oh, as, no. as easy as I thought you would, to be honest. <laughs> so, uh, no, thank you. And, and um, I know the coaching community here on the soccer side will, will get an awful lot from this. So thank you. And please, please continue the work at, at, uh, at challenging us and, and helping us get an insight to what we should be working on. 
Thanks, Gary. I'd love to come back around when I'm a little farther down the road looking at how teams can actually implement these kinds of structures. Thanks so much to Sam for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It definitely challenged some of my beliefs, obviously with the Michael Jordan one, who I had down as and the Chicago Bulls as one of the top teams in terms of culture and leadership. And it just makes you think a little bit more about it and a little bit more depth. And I can exactly see where he's coming from from that there. So um, probably the biggest part that I took away from it was the pressure that we put on the top players because as a, I've always chosen captains as someone who's played a massive role um, looking back on my teams why have I chosen that player why have I chosen this player and it's always been someone who I feel steps up in big moments and someone that has the respect of the team but I've probably looked at the respect of the team aspect as respect as in they, they execute in those big big moments in games and rather than respect as they give themselves to others or they do things behind the scenes. So, um, and then I wonder why I've come across that there, you know, bias or why I've come across that point of view. And it's probably because of the way I grew up with captains that the Maradonas, the Lothar Mateus, all the tournaments that I watched were the big, big players lifting the trophy. And obviously, the game's changing in so many ways and probably the biggest area that it is changing is the people in the game and how they think and how they work. So I think it's great that we can have these conversations and, and I'd love to hear from, from other coaches in, in what areas they feel that they've had success or what areas they've, they've had failure in. So um, always a good topic, always a good topic. And again, thanks so much to Sam for doing it. So what I'll do is I've also, I'll do a little giveaway on Twitter uh, for a copy of his book too, because I feel that it's something that all coaches should have a read at um, and would really, really benefit us if we're challenging our thoughts and challenging what we're doing in every area of the game. And that's coaching, that's training, and that's how we're looking at leadership. Uh, it can only make us better. So thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Please, please, please give us a shout. Uh, Twitter at Gary Kernane. Instagram now at Gary Kernane. Facebook Coach Kernane. And always an email if you want to follow up there as well. Gary at modernsoccercoach.com. So thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.